Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, if you have your copy of Scripture, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. And we're in chapter 1, as I said, taking a break from our study of Luke. And we come to the first of six messages on a series called The Roman Road. Many of you who grew up in Baptist churches or evangelical churches know that the Roman Road is a way to share your faith by memorizing some key passages from the book of Romans. And this is not the only way to share one's faith, but we are emphasizing personal evangelism leading up to Easter. But if you will memorize these six passages and understand their meaning in every situation of life, in just an economy of words, you can tell the good news of Jesus. Now you might remember from your study of Western civilization that wherever the Romans expanded their empire, their territory, they invested in infrastructure. They built good roads and bridges and aqueducts so that they could move their armies quickly from province to province as the need arises, but also to move goods and services back to their epicenter, which was in the city of Rome. Hence the saying, all roads lead to Rome. Well, the Roman road, as it relates to our series of messages, does not lead to a city, it leads to heaven. Meaning that if you will understand the meaning of these verses, it will lead one to a relationship with Jesus. And so I hope you'll commit to be here each of the next six Sundays. So go ahead and set your default setting to yes. And it's gonna take a real emergency for you to miss church over the next six weeks. Well, every journey has a starting point, And that's the title of the message today, the starting point of evangelism. So before we get on the road, let's make sure we're ready to go. You do that before you go on vacation, right? You check the oil and tire pressure. And so let's do that this morning. First of all, we need to understand what evangelism is and what it is not. Euangelizo is a Greek word where we get the word evangelism and evangelist simply means the proclamation of a good news message, particularly as it relates to a sovereign or a king. And so evangelism is telling the good news that God will forgive sins, that he will release a person from sin's power and give a person eternal life. Those are the three perspectives or elements of salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification. But before we go any farther, I I want to, to make some affirmations and some denials. This is sort of your liability waiver before you get on the bus on the Roman road, okay? Number one, I want to affirm And I hope you'll agree with me that man's greatest need is salvation. Now, humanity has a lot of needs. Some people lack the basics of life, food, clothing, and shelter. Some would argue that man needs education or man needs the internet or man needs housing. But man's greatest need is to be made right with his creator. And it's right and good and commanded in scripture to give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. But benevolence is not evangelism. Let's not confuse those two things. For something to be truly personal evangelism, the message of Jesus Christ has to be articulated verbally and has to be understood. And so I want to affirm that with you. Secondly, I want to affirm that God has made a way for people to be saved. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And then I want to affirm that evangelism is the business of every born-again believer. 
It's not just the purview of paid pastors and particularly gifted evangelists. The Great Commission is for all Christians to go and make disciples of all the nations. I also want to make some denials. I, I do not believe that any Christian has the power to save anyone. We can pray for them and we can share the good news, but it is up to God through the Holy Spirit to draw a person, convict them of, of their own sin. Jesus said this in John 3 to Nicodemus when they were talking about eternal life. He said, Nicodemus, the Spirit blows where it wills. It's not up to us to save. God neither is dependent on our creativity to save anyone. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul does not say that God requires a servant to be creative or even successful. He says what is required of a servant is that he's faithful, that he's obedient. And so your job, my job is to share the good news. The results are up to the Lord. And finally, I want to deny that there are many paths to salvation. See, Christianity is not offensive so long as it presents itself as one of many other choices. And yet the Bible presents biblical Christianity as exclusive. Remember Jesus used the very definite article. He says, I am the way to heaven. Not a way, the way, the way. And that informs us of the importance and the urgency of our task. There's no other name given among men whereby they must be saved. And so our message is the most important one in the world. Now, we're ready to begin on the Roman road. So let's read our text. Romans 1:18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen having understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling Creatures. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Before good news of any sort can make sense to a lost sinner, that sinner must first be confronted with the bad news. In other words, the sinner must understand that he is lost before he can be found. And that is the beginning point of evangelism today, the bad news. Now, most of us don't like to be the bearer of bad news. I don't like to be the bearer of bad news any more than you do. And yet we must tell the bad news before the good news has any meaning. Sometimes for our own good, we need to know the full extent of our condition to make us desperate for help. A little less than nine years ago, my wife and I began to notice that our firstborn daughter was not developing as fast as her peers, intellectually or physically. In fact, she was regressing. She was losing some of the speech that she had attained. And we told our pediatrician about it, and he said, oh, you're just overly concerned first-time parents. Don't worry about it. And so we tried not to, and we took her back after a few months as it became worse, and he continued to tell us nothing was wrong until finally we made an appointment with one of the leading developmental pediatricians in America. And she spent 15 minutes with our daughter went back to her office, made some notes, came back into the examination room where my wife and I were seated, 
And she announced that our daughter not only had autism, but one of the most severe cases she'd ever seen. And she was about to turn and walk away. And I think her experience told her what I was thinking. I was thinking, well, I'm going to fix her. I'm going to develop a program that will teach her to talk again and walk like other children. And in just a few years, this will all be an unpleasant memory. And so she sat back down in her little rolling stool and she rolled it over to me and she put her knee, knee to knee with me. And she leaned over, put her nose about six inches from my face and she said these words. She said, this is devastating. She was disabusing me of any notion that I could fix it. And she got up from her chair and she walked out and we never saw her again. And my first reaction to that was, what poor bedside manner, how rude and unfeeling. But as the years have gone by and what she said proved to be true, I'm very thankful for that lady because she told us the truth and we needed to know the truth so that we could help our daughter as best we could. The person <laughs> that I find I'm a little bitter at is the pediatrician who either out of incompetence or an attempt to be gracious withheld the truth from us. You know, in evangelism is sort of like that. We, we don't want to be unliked. We don't want to cause people pain. And yet the condition of a lost person is infinitely worse than my daughter's. And we have the truth. And it's our task to begin with the bad news. We, we think, well, I don't want to tell them that because it will make them feel bad. Well, that's true. In fact, Jesus said that a servant's not better than his master. He made people feel bad about their sin. Did you know the Bible says, though, that godly sorrow leads to repentance? And you say, well, I don't want people to dislike me. Well, Jesus said that's going to happen anyway. <laughs> so you might as well tell them the truth. And you say, well, maybe they will even dislike God if I tell them that he judges their sin. Well, friends, that ship has already sailed. <laughs> Man, in his unregenerate state, not only dislikes the God of the Bible... Indeed, he is a God-hater and a rebel. And the thing that man hates most about God is the first point of your outline, the fact that God judges all sin. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, that phrase, all ungodliness and unrighteousness, that's just another way of saying sin. God's wrath is revealed against all sin. Now, how is God's wrath revealed against sin? Well, two ways. Number one, through natural consequences. That is, if you continual, continually sin, it's going to have an effect upon your life and upon your body, just as surely as the laws of nature God has created are true. In, in Galatians chapter 6, the Bible says this, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, he shall also reap. Now, if you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption, damnation. If you sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap eternal life. That is the natural consequences of sin. You can see that at every jail cell and hospital in America. It's true. Just as surely as if you plant a corn seed, you expect to reap corn, right? You don't expect to reap a banana plant. And if you sin, you're going to reap God's judgment. There's a second way in which God's wrath is revealed, and that is through His divine intervention. Sometimes God chooses to break into His creation and judge immediately. He did that in the book of Genesis 
through the worldwide flood, didn't he? Man's sin became so egregious that uh, God said, I'm going to destroy it and start over. And he did with just one family, Noah and his sons and their families. Sometimes he sends fire and brimstone down from heaven, destroys entire cities like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Bible says one day every person is going to stand before him to be judged. And that person will either be welcomed to heaven if he has a relationship with Jesus or be cast into the lake of fire. So God's wrath is revealed against all sin. And man hates that about God. Man hates the fact that God judges his sin. In fact, man wants God without judgment, sin without consequences, heaven without hell, and life without death. And I can virtually guarantee you, if you present to your friends, neighbors, and strangers the kind of God that is popular, the one that will give you your wildest dreams and fantasies and never punishes your sins, you're guaranteed to be very popular and successful. <laughs> In fact, if you're a preacher, you might become so popular and successful that you get a book deal. And you may become so popular and successful that you have to buy a basketball arena in a large city to fit all of your followers in each Sunday. The problem is that that God is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible hates and judges sin. The God of the Bible is holy and just, and man knows that. But man hates that. And so secondly, man suppresses the truth. Look at the end of verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now one of the worst accusations that could be leveled against a person in a court of law is that they have suppressed truth or evidence. That's why when you're sworn in as a witness, you put your hand on the Bible and you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And if you fail to do that, you have suppressed the truth. So suppression is the act of preventing evidence from being made known to public. The Bible says man suppresses the truth that he knows about God. He won't let it out. Now how does man know about God? Well, in two ways. Number one is through um, the supernaturally implanted evidence of existence in their heart. Did you know that the Bible teaches that in every person is inborn a knowledge of God. That's why you don't have to convince children of the existence of God. Neither do you have to convince them of the existence of right and wrong. It's why at the very first chance they can, they lie <laughs> and they steal. That, that's why you find their cookie crumbs and candy wrappers in the closet. They know about right and wrong. God puts that in their heart. We call that the moral law written on their hearts. Look at chapter 2 here in Romans, verses 14 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, you know, no, the, the, the Ten Commandments, the law was given to the Jewish people. Gentiles didn't have it, didn't know of it. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having law are law unto themselves, in that they show the work of the law written where? In their hearts. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. And so every civilization I know of, even though they didn't have the Ten Commandments, knows it's wrong to lie or to kill or steal or commit adultery. It's written in their heart. So God has implanted into every human breast a knowledge of himself. Secondly, he has given us natural revelation. Look at verse 20. 
It says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they were without excuse. So he says, every person who has his senses, he can see, he can hear, he can smell and taste and touch, he knows that there's a God who created his surroundings. When he watches the sunset over the ocean, when he holds a newborn baby, when he stands on the north rim of the Grand Canyon and looks at the splendor and majesty of God, it gives testimony that there is a God and that he's powerful and that he's creative and that he sustains his creation benevolently. And so because of those two things, all men are without excuse. Now you add to that his special revelation of the scripture. There, there's hardly a home in America at least where there's not at least one copy of the full canon of Scripture. That's some pretty damning evidence. And he says even without the Scripture, man is without excuse. In fact, he says it twice in the first 33 verses. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, therefore you have no excuse. And you say, Pastor, what about that innocent man in deepest, darkest Africa who doesn't have a Bible and has never heard about Jesus? Let me stop you right there. That innocent man in deepest, darkest Africa does not exist. There is no innocent one. And here's why. Because through God's implanted word, the moral law, and through nature, he says all of us are without excuse. Well, you say, Pastor, goodness, that's some bad news. You haven't heard anything yet. It gets a lot worse. The third thing we see here is that man's heart is darkened. Man's heart is darkened. Verse 21, for even though they, that's speaking of humanity, knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they have become futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Here's what Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet, said about the human condition in chapter 17, verse 9 of the book that bears his name. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And who can know it? Who can hope to comprehend its depravity? Now, if you took a freshman psychology class in college or high school, you, you know that man has debated for millennia about his own nature. And really the theories of man boil down to three. Number one is the theory that man is inherently good. And when people kill and steal and destroy one another, it's an aberration that in his natural state, man is actually good. That's become harder and harder to prove, isn't it? As time goes by and we have more wars and more crimes committed. Years ago, there was a popular eschatological view, the view of the end times among Christians called post-millennialism. The idea is that as man becomes more educated and scientifically adept, he's going to become better and better until the world becomes such a good place, Jesus will want to come back here and live. <laughs> Almost no one I know believes that anymore, do you? That was before World War I and World War II and the German genocide of the Jews and all the things that we see as every day now. Man is not getting better. Just the opposite. Man is getting worse and worse all the time. 
How did it get that way? Well, the second choice is that man is morally neutral, right? That it is uh, the environment that determines if someone's going to be good or bad. So if you have two people, uh, twins, for example, born with the same genetics, they're separated at birth. One is raised in a family that teaches uh, good morality and gives them a good education. Then that person's bound to be good. But the person that... uh, doesn't have a good education, maybe lives in poverty, that person's bound for life of crime. Is that true? Not necessarily. There are people who are incredibly wealthy and well-educated who are master criminals. And on the other hand, there are people who grew up in abject poverty and without formal education who are fine, upstanding citizens. And so we're left with the third option, that man is like the Bible says. Man is born a sinner separated from God. How did he get that way? Well, it certainly didn't start out that way. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, have a perfect environment in which to live. God created the heaven and the earth, and then he created a perfect environment, the Garden of Eden. They had everything they could possibly need. God, the creator, would come in the cool of the morning and fellowship with them face to face. It's perfect. And yet, Adam and Eve rejected intimacy with God for something less than God. Something they thought would bring more satisfaction than God. And do you remember what that thing was? A piece of fruit. Adam and Eve believed that a piece of fruit would bring more satisfaction than daily intimacy with their creator. And we say, what a foolish choice. And it was, except for the fact that every time you and I sin, we do the same thing. Whatever it is that we think is more satisfying than intimacy with God is what we take over him. And oh, he gets very specific here about the sin of man. Verse 23 says, And he exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and, and crawling creatures. But before he did that, Before he physically changed his worship, it was a change of his heart and his mind. Verse 21, for even though they knew God. Now, Adam and Eve knew God, right? In the most intimate sense. Fellowshiped with him in the garden. They did not acknowledge him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was darkened. And so this is what we do today. We fail to acknowledge God's rightful place in our life. By the way, that's called glorifying God, right? Isn't that the reason we were created? To glorify God? And when we fail to do that, it's the worst kind of sin. And when we take of God's blessings, His clean air and His good food, and we sleep under a roof that He made possible, and we're not thankful for that, it is sin. But that's what man does. He congratulates himself for the things in his life. And finally... It leads to a rejection ultimately of truth in and of itself. And therefore, humanity is left to stumble around in the darkness. It's not that there's not light. It's that man doesn't want the light. John chapter 3, verse 19, speaking of Jesus, this is the judgment that the light came into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds are evil. So Jesus comes into the world, the light of the world, and man says, turn off the light. 
and he tries to extinguish the light as quickly as possible. But even in his darkness, and make no mistake, lost people are spiritually blind. Even in his darkness, man remains an inveterate worshiper. He's going to worship something. Now, he's not going to worship the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible judges his sin, and he doesn't want that. So he's going to create something that doesn't judge his sin that he's going to worship. Man, fourthly, is an idolater. And you know, of all the sins, God hates idolatry, doesn't he? In fact, the first two of the Ten Commandments have to do with idolatry. Have no other gods before me, and second, make no graven images. God knew that it was in the heart of man to be an idolater, so he warns us again, against it time and time again. And yet, what happens to man? Verse 22, as he makes scientific progress, as he learns to tame his environment, rather than causing him to give thanks for that to God for making it possible, he begins to be self-congratulatory. Verse 22 says, professing himself to be wise, he became a fool. You know anybody like that? That's educated way beyond their intelligence. They're incredibly intelligent on the IQ scale, but they deny the very existence of God. They're a fool. I didn't say that, the Bible does. The Bible says the fool is said in his heart, there is no God. And so since he's got that God out of the way, he's got to replace him with something. So he replacing, replaces the God that's revealed in the Bible with one on his terms. It's often been said that in the book of Genesis, God created man in his image. And man has been trying to return the favor ever since. <laughs> man tries to recreate God in his image. A God that he can get along with. God's ultimate goal, his ultimate plan, is to bring glory to himself. And those who are unthankful and unholy, who will not acknowledge his rightful place in their lives, sin against God. That is the condition that your friends and family and neighbors are in. By the way, it was the condition that all of us were in before we were saved. Hopelessly and helplessly lost. If you'll come the next five weeks, we're going to find the remedy to that. that. That's why the church and Christians are so important to this world. Because we are the one group of people and the one institution that has the solution to this problem. You know, God could have chosen any way that he wanted to communicate this good news message. But the way that he has chosen in his sovereignty is for Christians, those who have been saved, to tell other people how to be saved. Paul says, how can they believe, since faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, how can they believe unless they hear a message? How can you preach a message unless you've been sent? And we have a message and we have been sent by none other than Jesus Christ, right? Matthew 28, he says, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And if you don't know how to share that faith in an economy of words, you will, I promise you, at the end of this five weeks, if you'll come and if you'll give yourself to it. And if you already know how to do it, look, there, there's nothing proprietary about the Roman road. If you have another way that tells the same truth, use it, please, by all means. 
But this is a way, and it is a roadmap to lead a person to the saving knowledge of Jesus. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you're lost, you don't have to wait for six weeks to find out how to be saved. I'm about to tell you, okay? And I'm going to do this every week. But it's very serious and you need to come close. In fact, metaphorically, I'm going to wheel my little stool right up knee to knee with you, okay? And I'm going to lean my big nose out over about six inches from your face and I'm going to tell you this news is devastating. If you're without Jesus here today, you are hopeless and you are helpless. And your education, even if it's from an Ivy League school, and your money, even if it's in the millions or billions, is worthless to save you. You have one hope and one hope only, and that is to humbly come to God on His terms. And His terms are these. You've got to come to Him and repent from your sins. You've got to turn away and renounce your sin and turn towards Jesus. And you've got to come to Him with empty hands and empty pockets and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. And you've got to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And you've got to believe that He died on the cross taking the punishment that you richly deserved. And you've got to believe that on the third day God resurrected Him from the dead. You've got to believe that today He's alive, seated at the right hand of the Father. In short, you've got to put all of your weight, all of your trust in Jesus. And here's the good news. I told you the bad news. The good news is this. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's not a person here. Not a person you know, no matter what they've done, no matter how lost you perceive them to be, that if they'll come to Jesus on his terms, that he'll say, no, I won't save you. He won't do it. He will hear them. He will forgive them. He will save them just as surely as he's forgiven me. And that makes the good news that we have the greatest and most important in the world. Amen? It's worth sharing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we don't understand why you have entrusted the most important message in the universe to people like us, but you have. Father, we want to be faithful and obedient servants. One you find so doing when you come. Lord, we know we can't save anybody. We're not the Holy Spirit, and yet we are the vessels, the means, the conduits through which the saving message is spoken. And then the Spirit takes that message and does the work of conviction and salvation. Thank you for that privilege, Father. Help us to be more zealous to tell the good news with all those around us. And we trust you with the results, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.